0: Our first speaker will be Robert Grant, class of 67, uh, parent of two Princeton children, class of 2002 and 2007, so he has a child graduating uh, this week. Bob is a founding partner of the law firm of Grant and Gordon in Palo Alto. He specializes in family tax planning, estate planning, and probate and trust law. He's a fellow of the American College of Trust and Estate Council and has given numerous lectures, seminars, and presentations on estate and tax planning. Bob serves on the Plan Giving Advisory Committee at Princeton and is Vice President for the Class of 67 and the California Chairman for Annual Giving for the 40th Reunion Class. He served as a member of the National Board of Governors of the American Red Cross from 1995 to 2001. He graduated from Princeton in 1967 with an AB from the Woodrow Wilson School and received his, both his JD and an MBA from Stanford in 1972. Great year. <laughs> and Frank Mirabello, uh, class of 75, is also a parent for a, a graduating senior, class of 2007. Managing partner at the international law firm of Morgan Lewis and Bacchus in Philadelphia, where he heads the personal planning group. Frank specializes in estate planning, personal tax, business succession planning, and nonprofit law. Also a fellow of the American Council of Trust and Estates Council. Frank has been recognized by Forbes and Town & Country as one of the country's leading estate planning lawyers. He also serves on the Plan Giving Advisory Committee here at Princeton. Frank graduated summa cum laude from Princeton with a BS in civil engineering. He received his JD, magna cum laude, in 1978 from Harvard Law School. And so the uh, batting order will be Bob Grant will go first and then Frank uh, will uh, bat cleanup. So Bob, if you would please. uh
1: good morning morning. morning. I'm a flip chart person so we're going to be drawing as we go along here but also you have some materials in your packets and uh, these will be helpful guides as we go along one of them basic estate planning has nicer looking drawings uh, that you can follow on the basics of estate planning the second is a memorandum Uh, now beware this is Uh, community property oriented but it gives you the basics of of a lot of the stuff we're going to do here and much more beyond that because of the limited time and then the third is uh, the fun thing we're going to talk about family limited partnerships, generation skipping trusts and sales to defective generation skipping trusts so we're going to try to cover both basics and uh, and a little more sophisticated when you want to move wealth a little bit further Um, kind of several topic areas. Bypass trust, generation skipping trust, from a trust, and then the flips and the sales to defective uh, trust. Basic estate planning. The estate tax. Oh, wait minute. let me ask a question. How many of you already have your estate plan in place? Hands up. Good sophisticated group, all those that was my trick question for the day all those who did not raise their hands you in fact do have an estate plan Uh, the IRS and your state of domicile have provided you with one the only question is whether it's what you want (laughs) the federal tax rules drive you in certain directions I want to give you the first tax oriented planning device that is typically used and that comes from the following California's community property state. Most of the states are separate property states. Changes in ownership of property. The estate tax is kind of a simple tax. It's a net worth tax of the deceased And so you've got to sort out with couples what does each spouse own. And then they compute a tax on what the deceased spouse owns. Literally fair market value of everything. I'd It's an accrual basis net worth statement at date of death. Clothing, jewelry, furniture, securities, real estate, IRAs, life insurance proceeds. They total it all up, subtract out the debts, and they compute a tax on what's left. There is, when you have both spouses, you split up the property, this piece, the survivor's piece, free of tax, this piece is the one they compute the tax on. Now I put this in a box, a little small digression. In California, uh, we use revocable trusts or living trusts all the time. The will is the traditional document for writing your plan. The revocable trust is used because it avoids probate court, both for incompetency and a death. Either document gets you the tax planning games that you do. You can write it either way. and. We find it much more convenient in California to avoid probate court and the legal fees, filing fees, and other costs and delays that are involved. Most of the work is done in the privacy of the lawyer's office and so you never really get involved in public disclosure or other issues related to operating in the courts. In my box we often do joint trusts for community property. You can do (coughs) separate trusts which are often done in the separate property states. And you take a look at the deceased spouse's piece. And this is the first tax-finding issue. Most of you have heard of this. There's an amount that is free of estate tax, no matter who you give it to. And in your slide two, that tax-exempt portion is at the bottom. Right now, that's $2 million, less whatever you've used of it during lifetime. But typically, you look at it as $2 million. And we're on a roller coaster for the amount of that exemption. For federal, purposes. For federal purposes, right. In California, the federal government got rid of the California state tax, which is uh, an interesting development. All of the money now goes to the federal government. None of it goes to the state, as states with inheritance taxes get. And we think it's probably because we're a blue state, and maybe they had something to do. <laughs> <out there. laughs> so, but uh, we actually have no California state tax now. Out of that, federal, and most of this couple of warnings I think Frank's made it clear one it's kind of the joke don't try this at home kids you know whatever you see on the TV talk to a qualified estate planning attorney before you do anything every statement we take we make today is qualified and you've really got to look at the individual circumstances and second this is dominated by federal tax law but state tax laws can have very significant impacts and you've got to be aware of those and they complicate the thing a bit
2: because some states didn't, didn't increase their exemption to two million. Yeah. Like, you know, New Jersey left it at a million. So. Mm. You know, so is so, Washington. Right. <laughs> so you know you, you could you could take advantage of the feds, but mm-hmm. you wind up paying tax in the state. Yeah. Unless you do you before, yeah. special planning yeah. with our recommended <laughs>
1: state planning attorneys. <laughs> 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 this piece, the tax exemption, portion, it goes up and down. The roller coaster is in 2009, it's $3.5 In 2010, it's infinity. That's the year of the repeal. And in 2011, it comes back down to $1 million. That's what's in the statute now. Everyone asks, well, is that going to stay there? And every one of the estate planners says, tell me what Congress is going to do, and then I can tell you. And none of us really know. It's, there's been constant discussion of fixing that, altering it, Setting a three and a half, setting a five million exemption. We don't know in reality what they're going to do. But right now, that's what it looks like. That piece is the planning option. Go to slide three. The typical thing you do on the first death is you put that into what we call the bypass trust. It goes by a lot of different names. B trust, exemption trust, credit shelter trust. The gist of it is you take that exempt portion and you put it into a trust for the survivor's benefit, surviving spouse's benefit, assuming there is one here. We'll keep it simple. And they can get the benefits of that during lifetime. But then when they die, on second death, it passes free of estate tax down to the next generation which we'll put down here the ungrateful children (laughs) they benefit from this because this passes free of tax and interestingly it can be extraordinarily flexible you can have the spouse be the sole trustee so they manage, invest it they get all the income from this, interest, dividends net rentals they can get the principal for their own health maintenance, support, and education. My interpretation of that is there's a Stanford Danube cruise. It's educational, it's healthy, it's $50,000. Very expansive potential readings of this and the people who object to invading the principle are typically not the IRS because this is tax-free money. They figure if you spend this there'll be more over here to be taxed when the survivor dies so they're happy it's the kids who say wait a minute mom said health maintenance support and education dad's talking about the Greek cruise. (laughs) judge tell dad to put it back in he's abusing his discretion and that's when the fourth power comes in that's very important it's called a special power of appointment even though this is irrevocable the survivor can have the right to change who the remainder beneficiaries are and then you explain (laughs) to Objecting Child that it is now going to a famous university uh, on the East Coast that you think very highly of and their share (laughs) is gone. (laughs) We we call them powers of (laughs) discipline. I view that as essentially full control. Basically it's in a trust and the benefit is you avoid tax. Now the problem is survivor gets the rest if you have a U.S. citizen spouse for federal purposes anything that passes to that spouse is free of the state tax and ends up in what is typically called the survivor's trust or the A trust um, goes by a lot of different names but that's basically it when they die they have a new beneficiary the IRS basically half assuming you make it to 2011 half of everything over the exempt amount goes to the IRS it's a sliding scale in 2011 41 to 55% but the gist of it is I can't multiply by those numbers it's 50% goes to the government and that's why you use this to try to shelter both exemptions so if the kids get round numbers anywhere from right now four million in 2011, two million free of estate tax. That's laid out on slide four. And when the children are young, <coughs> you put it into separate share trust for their benefit. So if they you hold it until they're mature enough to handle the money. The Trustee can spend it for them. But you've done what you can in a sense, just writing a document for minimizing the estate tax on the deaths of the spouses. There's one more trick. I'm not going to talk about Q-tip trusts this morning because we have limited time. The trick is down here because when those children get the property in their separate share trusts, Ultimately, they get hold of that. It's their, it's their property gets distributed, say, 25, 30, 35, something like that. 40, 50, <laughs> 60, whatever you think is appropriate. Um, when they die, call this the third death, they go through the tax again. Half of everything over a million before it gets down to the grandchildren. That second tax at the next generation is what we try to avoid with what's called the generation-skipping trust. Go to slide 7. We started them out simple. We get more and more boxes, more and more arrows. The gist of it is, when the spouse dies, or I'm sorry, when the children die down here, if we give it all to, or when the parents die, if we give it all to the children, they're going to be taxed. But we can take part of this money and instead of giving it to the children at some ages, we put it into trust for their lifetime, and then called generation skipping trust. But they don't skip the generation; they're for the benefit of the children. We can put all of the bypass trust in and we can put an amount from the survivor which in 2011 it's inflation adjusted so we think it's probably something like a million and a half somewhere. You can put it in here rather than over here and this trust is basically a bypass trust for the kids. It has very similar terms. The children can be trustees when they reach some designated age. They can take the income and in principle for health, maintenance, support, and education, the magic terms, and they can have a special power of appointment. And the reason we do this is when that third death occurs, that GST trust and all the growth in it goes down to the third generation free of estate tax. You've taken another pile off the estate tax table. And that's your basic plan. That's what you end up with. That's standard estate planning design. And if you don't have this in, you want to talk to your estate planning attorney and say, is any of this applicable to me? Does any of this make sense? The problem is still, over here, When the survivor dies, we go through the same computation and there's an exempt amount and the excess, and the excess is taxed at 50%. And so the question is, what do we do about that? I have to go backwards a little step here to give you the gift tax rules. Three levels of gift tax. Annual exclusion this is what everyone has heard of it's the twelve thousand dollars you can give every year to every donee you want no gift tax, no gift tax return required if you go above that I call it a reportable gift and you, each parent can give one million dollars during lifetime to any number of donee's a total of one million and there's no gift tax required, but there is a gift tax return that has to be filed to report to the government you've done that. And the consequence is you use up some of the exemption at death. If you use the one million in lifetime you've got to subtract that from whatever is available at death.
2: Notice it's it's different. I mean, one million during life, two million at death. It used to be the same, but in that last tax bill they froze the gift tax while the debt tax increases.
1: And that's an important point because a lot of people think, oh, oh, two million. And if you if you give away two million, you're going to hit a half million dollar gift tax for that extra million. And that's surprised some people because they <coughs> it gets confusing. If you go above the reportable level, that's what I call taxable gifts, just like the estate tax, roughly fifty percent of the value of what you're gifting and so those are the three levels you go through annual exclusion gifts are terrific um, 12 you know, if you take each spouse and each child so you have got two spouses twenty four thousand a year three children seventy two thousand a year because you can do twenty four to each of them if they're married you've got another three you, you can move a tremendous amount of wealth every year to the family, just with simple annual exclusion gifts, and you know, then sometimes you'll do games, which we'll talk about in a minute, of disguising the value of what you're giving, so that you can actually get more than twenty-four thousand a year. But the end result is this may be a whole lot more wealth than you ever want to move. <laughs> this is fine, Bob. I, I had a client who wrote me. We we wrote him when the uh, law changed from three thousand to ten thousand. We wrote everybody excitedly said, now you can give 10000 to your children each year. And my client wrote back a little note, three's enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you take that in mind. Um, but you can see, if, if you start to get into large wealth, this also can become a small window when you're trying to move large amounts of wealth. Uh, it sounds big in one sense, and it can be cumulatively over the years. But on the other hand, if you've got already 20 million, and you've got two children and no spouses, you start to look at that, and that's noise level in the stock market every day. You, you're not necessarily moving a lot of wealth. And that's why people like to move this early. You are moving a million dollars to the children, but because you shrink the death tax exemption, all you're really getting rid of is the future income and future growth on that million because you've shrunk the exemption at death. That can still be a lot over time but you, you look at that and you say what am I really reducing my estate by? You're reducing it by the income you would have earned or the growth you would have had and that again sometimes squeezes people and they look at it and say that's really not enough. And that's where we're going to get to the last item, which is the sales to defective trust. These levels are how you move the wealth in one sense. Where you move it is where the crummy trust comes in. The crummy family was a northern California family. They, The problem with the annual exclusion is a technical rule. It has to be a gift of a present interest. Not a future interest. A present interest is something the beneficiary can spend today. A future interest is your typical trust that says they don't get it until they're 35. And the trustee will decide whether they get anything. To qualify for the annual exclusion, you have to give the beneficiary a present interest. And the Crummy family's attorney was very clever. He said, okay, we'll give the beneficiary the right to pull it out for 30 days. If they don't take it out, the window closes. And then the money is locked up in the trust. Well, the IRS said, well, the beneficiary is two years old and playing with Tinker Toys. <laughs> and our wonderful Ninth Circuit Court said, well, we don't care. The parents are the natural guardians. They can do it for the child. So parents put the 12000 in, turn around, put their guardian hats on, and say, do I want to pull this out? No, window closes, and you've achieved a present interest gift, and it's locked up in the trust. The end result is this is what the kind of trust you use when you're doing annual exclusion gifts. If you do reportable gifts, then you want to do lifetime GSTs. And you allocate your generation skipping exemption because you you don't want the asset to be included in the child's estate if you can avoid it. So we create these during lifetime and you make your reportable gifts in here. And then these assets are not included in the child's estate when they die. So you pick what trust you put the gift in according to the nature of the taxable gift. So we typically recommend to people put it into GST trust. You don't have to. You can just give it out, right? One of my clients said that. said, Bob, I like Life Simple. I've heard all your, your talk. I've heard all these complicated things you've told me about. If I just write a check to each of the kids, I'm done. He wrote a check to each of the kids. (laughs) It was was very simple. kids were delighted. They were in the stage where they were having children come up. They all smiled and said thank you. And uh, it's been about 10 years that we're now trying to figure out, okay, what do we do next? (laughs) Because it it complicates the planning because he doesn't have any exemption left anymore. Um, Now, the last game is disguising and there's, a, there's actually a little piece in here family limited partnerships, GST trusts, and sales to defective trusts you've heard of these flips they are entities, they can be LLCs limited liability corporations, they can be family limited partnerships they come in a lot of different forms, the flip is has primarily two goals, one is disguising value how many of you—and this is a little show and tell—how many of you have invested in a limited partnership? It, you know, it's okay. This is like alcoholic Anonymous. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the day after you put your money in, could you have sold the thing for what you put in? No. In fact, it takes years for you ever to see the money come back. They sometimes go on forever, though. You are know, living zombies <laughs> that never ever terminate, and so they are. It's hard to sell these things the market creates a discount on the fair market value of these entities because you don't have much control. All you get is whatever the general partner tells you you're going to get. So we use the flip. We create one for family members. You put property into it and then what you're gifting is the limited partnership interest, which you ask the appraiser to tell you what is it worth. And they come back and they say, not worth what you put in. You get a discount. So now if you gift an annual exclusion gift of a flip interest, you're not gifting 12000 you may be gifting 15000 or more of real value, but for gift tax purposes, it's valued at what it would sell for, which is less. So the disguising is wonderful, and yet the parents, with some real caveats involved here, because this is a hot area for the IRS, the parents typically end up being general partners, managing the investments and the ownership of the limited partnership interest is in the crummy trust or the GST trust. There is another concept which is the income taxation of trusts. There are standard trusts which are actually little taxable entities themselves. They have their own tax brackets and they pay income tax like an individual. The trick is the brackets are compressed horrendously. They hit the maximum bracket at about $10,500 or so. And so, as opposed to individuals which are what, Frank, $350, uh, something like that. So, huge compression of the brackets. But you can also write a trust so it's what we call intentionally defective, or technical terms for the IRS, grantor trust, meaning even though it's irrevocable and the income belongs to the trust the parents who created the trust get the opportunity to continue to pay the income tax on that income. Now at first you say, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm paying income tax on my kid's income, thanks a lot. But that for estate planning purposes is really good because we got a revenue ruling a couple of years ago and made clear what most estate planners thought was the case. That is, when you pay the income tax on a grantor trust on behalf of your kids, that's not a gift. And so if you think about a million-dollar gift into a trust and it's earning 50,000 a year, and you get to pay 20,000 of income tax out of your own money, and the children keep in their trust the income that's the equivalent of an additional20,000 dollars of gift each year, but it doesn't count against the annual exclusion or reportable gifts. And it, as you build this up over time, it can be a tremendous wealth-shifting opportunity.
2: It's also a big incentive for the kids never to take anything out of this trust. Yes. Yes, we've got mom and, and to dad. Somebody else pay paying it's all the income tax <laughs> on it. It's a nice savings account.
1: Yes. Let me explain to you how you pay the income tax if you take it out, son. <laughs> <laughs> or I get to pay the income tax if you leave <coughs> it in, son. <laughs> what do they do? Exactly what Frank says. Um, the last game is... The last game for you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Last game on this part. Then we're going to get the more complicated stuff that Frank understands. The sale: if you are treated as the owner of this trust for tax purposes, then if you sell something to the trust, it's considered a sale to yourself. There's no gain recognized. When you want to move greater wealth than the annual exclusion and the uh, the reportable exemption of a million. You take, I'll use an example, say a $6 million partnership. You get it valued, let me use an example, at $4 million, a one-third discount, and then you sell that limited partnership interest to the grantor trust in exchange for a promissory note from the trust. You've now moved $2 million of wealth, the disguised portion, into the GST trust which is a defective trust a grantor trust and the kids get the income on the 6 million and they owe you interest on the promissory note which is only for 4 million the income very often is enough to cover the interest payments coming back so it's a self financing move you've used in this simple example no gift tax exemption no annual exclusion gift but you move two million dollars of wealth for free. That's the third section in there and let me emphasize as hard as much as I can this is a hot area. <laughs> you want to be sure you do this properly. You've got to make sure you've got good valuations. You have other tricks that you have to go through in terms of funding the GST trust to make sure they're credit worthy and other issues. But the gist of it is this and it's a much larger wealth shifting device than just gifting every year. All with the caveat, make sure you really want to move that wealth. (laughs) You you may look at it, there's a whole family issue of incentives, behavior modification, uh, the, the children who decide it's okay, I'll take the income tax because I don't have to go to work. And you go. Wait a minute! <laughs> what were we doing here? That's the game. Those are the articles. That's the tax planning side of this thing. And now we're going to get some more complex stuff. that Frank's going to go through for you, which includes some charitable opportunities for our sponsor. <laughs> do, you, do you take questions now, or are you going to wait until later?
0: Why don't we wait until later? Because uh, we, we do yeah. need to. There's a lot of other things to cover. So thank you. Yeah, it will stick around. Yeah. I'll stick around afterwards to
2: any questions you have. My son's probably not up yet. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do have an announcement. My son actually did get up. Uh, He's unknown to have arisen before 1 o'clock at any time, but uh, I wanted to welcome my
2: son here, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he needs to stay <laughs> You know, the sort of follow up on that, I, I call this part of it, which Bob just began, sort of stage three planning. Stage one is getting a set of state of the art documents in place, like he described. So, if you get hit by a truck, you know, your family in Princeton are taken care of. Um, you know, stage two is the sort of chipping away at this tax problem, putting in a gifting program, you know, so the Kids have some assets now, so the kid who graduated with an English degree and can't get a job, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, things like that, where you know, and the gifting programs are important. I mean, you know, one of the and in, in, in stage three is really where all the action is, where you can really move significant amounts of wealth over, and you know, we took, we focus a lot on the tax issues, but what we're finding more importantly now. Is the realities of the situation. I mean, if your kids are going to inherit their money, they're going to be pretty old. With life expectancies being what they are, the chances are one of the parents will live to life expectancy, the kids are going to be in their 60s when they inherit. So there is a huge move these days of moving capital during life. So the clients can see their kids enjoy some of the wealth, more importantly, see their grandchildren enjoy some of the wealth with the ones they really like, uh, and not waiting, you know, oh, mom hasn't died yet. So a lot of this emphasis is, is, is tax related, but there's more reality of moving wealth over uh, during lifetime. So how, how do we do that? I mean, well, well, the way I explain it to clients, this is stage three. This is that our system's very simple. Okay, You and your spouse have the government as a 50% partner in everything that you do. Right? And what the partnership agreement says is when both of you die, we have to buy your partner out and they get to choose the price. Okay? Very simple system. <laughs> now, if you had that partnership agreement with the guy across the street right, who never invested a penny with you, Okay. never spent an hour working on helping you build wealth. Right. If you had that partnership agreement with him across the street, when you had your next great idea, do you think you would put it in that partnership? When your broker came to you with a great investment opportunity, do you, do you think you'd say, well, just, let's just stick it in the partnership with the guy across the street? No, you. every night you'd be off trying to figure out how you screw them out of the next deal. <laughs> That's estate planning. <laughs> That's all we're doing. We're, point is, you're going to build wealth. Whether you're a family business owner and you're working 90-hour weeks and building the business, or you're a real estate developer and you're doing new projects, or you have marketable securities and you've got a really good investment advisor, you're going to build wealth. We just don't want the government as a partner as you build that well. That's the focus of this part of the planning. Sometimes we get you know, too ingrained in the techniques, uh, but the clients have to buy in to the program because basically all of these things we're talking about, the sale and the other things Bob talked about, really we can shift all the growth on an asset over 6% out of the estate tax free. Very simple economics. The question is do you want to do that? I mean you have a certain I can't it's very hard to make you poor. Okay? We can do the gifting, you know, it's it's gonna be chipping away, you know, the annual exclusion gifts. It's very hard to make clients poor. You know, unless they spend a lot of money. But you know, from our standpoint, our fees are not big enough, really. <laughs> <laughs> so <coughs> the issue though is we can prevent them from getting richer. Uh, We can limit the amount of growth that we have to share with the government. That's the basic economic objective. So if a client says, all right, I've got my level of wealth, and from this point on, I'm willing to shift the future growth over 6% out of my estate to a trust for my kids, to a trust for my spouse and kids. I want it out of the system. There are a lot of techniques to be able to do that. One was the sale, think about it. All we've done in the sale is we took an asset, which we expect to grow, and we converted it to a note with an interest rate. And right now, the IRS tells you what interest you have to charge. It's at historic lows, it's around 5%. So you sell an asset, you take back a note at 5%. Now what's happened to your estate? Your estate is stuck at the value of the note, Plus a 5% growth rate. Now you do this because you expect the asset you moved over to be doing better than 5%. If you put you know, shares of a family business or a real estate project that's growing at 15, 20% a year, you've moved that excess out of the estate, no partnership with the government, no gift tax. Right? Similar, we have a lot of clients who are entrepreneurs. They're constantly doing new deals. You know, new real estate developments. If they just do those deals personally, like they've done for the last twenty years, what happens? They got the government as a partner. Instead, if we create the trust for the family, and we say, "Well, let's loan the money to that trust. Let it do the new deal." So you got a new real estate development. It's going to take a couple of million dollars of capital. You just would have used your own money to do that. Let's loan the money to the trust. It invests the two million dollars that deals out of the estate. What's happened? Your estate is now the note receivable plus the interest on that. Right? All of that growth is out of the estate. Most of my clients are not doing new deals because they expect the rate of return to be five percent. <laughs> they're expecting the rates of return to be 15%, 20 percent. That's why they're investing their capital. If we don't do something, they'll wake up five years later and their estates will be another fifty percent higher. If they loan the money and let the next generation take advantage of the opportunity, that excess is out of the estate. So, and that's basically the the sales. There are a couple of issues with those two techniques. You know, very simple, uh, but there are a couple of issues with them. One, and and this goes to sort of Bob's sale, right? There's gift tax risk with that, right? We get the limited partnership. We get the family business appraise. You know, we talk to the appraiser. We want the lowest number you can with a straight face. You know, and, uh, and you know we get a nice book prepared. You file it and you disclose it to the IRS. <laughs> what are you crazy? We're not going to give you that kind of valuation. You sold that for two million dollars. We think it's worth three and a half. Well, you fight with them. If they turn out to be right, you sold something for two million dollars that's worth three and a half. You made a million and a half dollar gift. So there's gift tax risk when you do a sale like that. No gift tax risk if it's a straight loan because we know what money's worth. But when you do the sales, there is a risk. The other risk with the sales and the loans is uh, things sometimes go. Down and not up. Right? Not every investment works out, right? and we really try to want to avoid doing reverse estate planning. It's not really what we're getting to do. So you know, if you sold something, you know, and you took back a note, and the investment goes down, well, your estate's still got the note, right? Your estate's got the note and it's growing. Meanwhile. The kids didn't get what they bought. So you could wind up in these transactions with it being reverse estate plan. You're worse off than if you hadn't done it. Well, there's, there's an alternate strategy, okay, which you know basically allows you to shift all the winners and keep all the losers. So every investment that goes up, you let the profits go to the next generation, and every one that goes down, you keep the losers. No downside to that strategy. The worst that happens is they were all losers and your net worth goes down, which <laughs> helps with the taxes, or they go up and the and you got richer by the six percent and the excess is sitting outside your state. Most clients, if their if their wealth is going up by six percent, They don't mind if it actually got a great year in the market and the market was up 20% and they let the other 14 go to the next generation because they're feeling pretty good with their 6%. So, what is this sort of third strategy? It's what we call a grantor retained annuity trust, a GRAT for cocktail party talk. And basically, the way it works is you create a trust, you put an asset in the trust, the trust pays you back an annuity. For a certain number of years. We usually do them pretty short, two or three years. And at the end of the trust, whatever's left in it goes in trust for the family. Could be kids, could be spouse and kids, but it's outside the estate. And we set that annuity so that its present value equals what you put in the trust. So if you put a million dollar asset in the trust, and let's say it's a two year grant, you, know, you plug into the computer, the IRS says, well, hey, the discount rate this month is 5.6%. Right? Plug in a discount rate of 5.6%. How much of an annuity do I have to get every year to equal a million dollars? Maybe that's $520,000 a year. So this trust says pay 52% of day one's value to you each year for two years. And at the end of the two years, whatever's in there goes into a trust for spouse and kids. Well, what happens? From the IRS standpoint, it's no gift, right? You put in a million dollars, and you kept a million dollars. You made no gift. The IRS is assuming that that asset is going to perform today at 5.6%. If they're right, there won't be anything left in that trust at the end, right? Because you will have gotten everything back with the annuity. If that asset performs at 15% a year, there's going to be quite a bit of money left in that trust at the end, all of which is sitting with the family tax rate. So, there's no gift tax risk. If we put in uh, an asset and get it appraised at a million dollars and and the trust says pay me back $520,000 a year, now we don't need cash to pay that annuity. What in fact in all these trusts we do is we revalue the asset at the end of the first year get a new appraisal of it and pay $520,000 worth of the asset back to the, to the client. It might be real estate, it might be family business stock, or it might be marketable securities. Right? If the IRS comes in and says, no, 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 it wasn't worth a million, it was worth a million and a half, okay, all that happens is the annuity adjusts. It's not $520,000, it's $780,000. Still no gift. So with the GRAC, there's no gift tax risk. Because right? it always zeros out to no gift, which of course means there's not much incentive for the IRS to challenge some of those valuations because there's no money in it for them. Right? And uh, the, the disadvantages with, of the GRAT, as compared, for example, the sale is when you've got to live to the end. Right? Kind of make it to the bell goes off. Right? If you die the day before the GRAT was going to end, it's all back in your estate. Which is of course what would have happened if you hadn't done it. So there's no that's not really a downside. Whereas if you do the sale, you know, what's in your estate on day two is the note whether you live or not. You've gotten that appreciation from the day of the transaction out of your estate. Brat, you got a lifting. That's why we tend to do them short, two or three years. We take a lot of the actuarial risk out of it. The other thing is you can't allocate generation skipping exemption to these until the end. Whereas with the sale, you can do it on day one. The trust is exempt; it's not going to be in the kids' estates. With a GRAT, you got to wait to the end, which means, in all likelihood, in most of these trusts, we are creating trusts that will be taxable in the kids' estates. We got them out of the senior generation, but we're going to pay in, in future generations. So, what do we use it for? A lot of family businesses. We, a lot of our clients you know, look at the, the value of their businesses, they're satisfied with that level of wealth, they'll put all their stock in their family businesses <coughs> in grants all the time. So that they're always moving the next level of growth in that business out of their estate. And you do that consistently year in and year out, you know, you'll move a fair percentage of that business totally free of tax out of your estate. And if you have a dip in value, we have many grants who fail. Right, they don't work because business had two tough years, went down in value. All the stock goes back to the client, right, to pay the annuity. Well, that's actually an opportunity because now we have a lower value. We start all over again at the lower number, and over time, you know, the things will go up. We do it with real estate assets. Um, we'll put, you know, real estate partnerships in these in these graphs again to make the overall return over. Today, 5.6% out of the estate. The other thing we're doing them with now for many of our clients is just with marketable securities. And our modeling is very interesting. I mean you might most of our clients have diversified portfolios of equities, large cap value, large cap growth, small cap, mid-cap, international, right? And most people are saying, all right, well, all right, the chances are the overall market will go up by at least, you know, 6%. Maybe we'll get something out of this. The advisors are saying, you know, 8% a year on equities. Uh, That's if you put it all in one trust. But the one thing we do know about the equity markets is some things will do really well, and some things will do really poorly. What you want to do is shift all the winners and keep all the losers. So what we'll typically do is we'll create a separate trust for each asset class. So we'll put the client's large cap growth in one trust, large cap value in another trust, mid caps in a separate trust. They're all identical, right? And the international stocks in another. What we know is even if the market muddles along flat, you've all seen that sort of Picture chart with all the different colors of what did well one year and did terrible the next. We know some things will do really well. If you put each asset class in a separate trust, all those ones that did really well, all that profit's going to go over to the next generation, tax-free, and the ones that did really poorly, you keep those loose. If you do that consistently over a year, the, the family's wealth as a whole might not might be going along at five or six percent. What we our models show that if you do this strategy, this junior generation's net worth will be rising because they're skimming off the right all the right decisions, and the senior generation will be going down because they're taking all the bad decisions even though the mm-hmm. wealth as a whole estate stay flat. So there's a lot of opportunity in this, in this stage three planning to move well, even though you don't have an overall asset that you expect to do a lot better than 6%, which might be the stock market. But this is all in keeping with, again, where we started. Am I rich enough? I, I never assume the answer to that question. Because okay. I have clients who've got, you know, Four or five million dollars, and they'll do everything they can: annual exclusion gifts, gra- everything to get them down to the tax-free amount. You know, I got clients who're worth you know hundred million dollars. Never know; you might get sick. <laughs>
0: Funny, you know, I, I,
2: I can't get them to do anything. You know, you know they're just—it's a mental—it's a state of being. Okay, and everybody reaches it at a different point. So I, I never, you know, look at a balance sheet and assume people will be ready to do these things, uh, but. For those clients who feel I have a level of wealth and I'm comfortable with, and I do want to move, you know, I don't want to wake up five years from now and see my net worth twice this and have the government as a partner and all that. Yeah, things double over the next five years, I'd be willing to give some of that to a trust for spouse and kids. That's really the mindset. And if the client is in that mindset, we apply these techniques, and we've gone through the three basic ones, sales, loans, and grants, which will accomplish that objective. Okay. Well, now, let, let's turn a minute to philanthropy so that uh, Ron can deduct a little bit. We spend a lot of t- com- time with clients having them set their priorities. You know, what's important for them? What do they want to accomplish with their wealth? And more and more we see clients saying, you know, X dollars is enough for the kids. I right? you know, I don't want to provide incentives for them, I don't want to give too much money, you know. X dollars is enough. And if my estate is bigger than that, I want to give something back. I mean there are organizations that are important to me. Once I've taken care of that first priority for the kids, there's something philanthropic I want to do, something I want to accomplish. And then, you know, often that might be a dollar amount of a priority. Uh, and then if the estate's bigger than that, there might be some sharing between family and, and philanthropy. Uh, once they set those priorities, then the advisor's job is well, how do we accomplish those as efficiently as possible? And, you know, the first priority with the kids, well, that's what we've been talking about. I mean, it is a lot cheaper and more efficient to get that money moved over during life than it is to pay 50% when you die. Because remember, it's not really 50%. It's 100%. Okay? Because to get a million dollars to the kids at death, you have to have a million dollars to pay tax. Right? Because the tax on 2 million is 50% is a million dollars. Some people would say that's a hundred percent tax, right? So every dollar you give the kids costs a dollar in tax. Very expensive. So, you know, many clients say, all right, let's try to get this X dollar priority taken care of now. And so if you do the GRAT strategy, you do the sales strategy, and you do them aggressively year in and year out, you wake up, many of our clients, ten years later, and X dollars is set aside for the kids. So often it's a heck of a lot more than X dollars, more than they wanted to get them. You know, But 10 years later, a dollar isn't a dollar anymore, and they needed more anyway. But many of them find that initial priority is taken care of. So we have a lot of clients who done these strategies, taken care of the kids. Their entire estates go to charity. They're out of the tax system right? because they've now gotten all their priorities taken care of and never paid a penny in taxes. Uh, so Once you know, they take care of the kids, some of it's done during life, the rest is taken care of as part of their estate plans, and now they have this piece that they, they want to go to charity. Uh, in, in the outline, in the materials, is in a planning for philanthropy outline that I use a lot of training sessions for fundraisers. We represent a lot of nonprofit organizations like Princeton in their, in their development offices. And, and that's designed to be sort of a layman's explanation of a whole variety of philanthropic techniques, plan-giving techniques. Uh, and, it's, and each of them has an example with it as to how it actually works from a tax standpoint. So it's something you can, you know, you can sort of explore later. What I want to just talk you know, briefly about, in the few minutes I've left, there are two techniques that are very popular right now. Um, the first is the charitable remainder trust. And, you know, there are certain situations where this is really sort of a no brainer. So many clients say, you know, at death, or the, my death, or at the death of my, the spouse and I, I want, you know, a million dollars to go to charity. This is in a Princeton. I want a million dollars to go to Princeton. This is important. All right, well, it's easy for Bob Hindu. We just do a new will and say, the death of the survivor, a million dollars goes to Princeton. And you know you don't get any brownie points really because you know you can change your will the next day you know and, and uh, you'll make Ron feel happy but you know <laughs> not dead yet, yet. Okay. Uh, what what you know what benefit do you get from that well you know your estate gets a million dollar estate tax deduction right so we know what it cost your kids it cost them half a million dollars that's what they would have gotten had you not left that million for right? Uh pretty straightforward easy to do but. The government says, you know, if you really mean that, we'll give you other tax benefits. If you're willing to commit to leaving that million dollars to Princeton, we'll give you some tax benefits today for doing that. So you say, you create a charitable remainder trust, right? You keep the income on it on the million dollars. You put the million dollars in the trust, you keep the income on it. In fact, we'll even let you choose. You can choose either an annuity, where you get a fixed dollar amount. Every year it doesn't change. Or, you know, if you're younger and you want some growth in the future, we'll let you take a fixed return every year. We'll revalue the trust every year. It might be 5 6%. And every year we'll revalue the trust. You'll get 6% and when you die or when you and your spouse die, what's left in that trust will go to Princeton. If you'll do that, if you'll commit to it, uh, one, we'll give you an income tax deduction today for the present value of what Princeton will get. In other words, a million dollars minus you know, what the value of this income you're gonna keep is, you know, that might be 60 or 70% of the gift, that 30% of today's value that you're leaving to Princeton, we'll give you an income tax deduction today. That saves you money today. Right? Secondly, we'll let you do it with appreciated assets. You know, the Microsoft you bought you know, 20 years ago, and you know your broker's been telling you to sell for 20 years, but you haven't done, thankfully. Right? Uh, we'll let you put that in and sell it in the trust and pay no tax. Right? Well, what does that mean, really? If you put your appreciated assets in these trusts, and you get to sell them and pay no capital gains tax, you've got the government's 15% working for you for the rest of your life. Earning income, that's that overall life expense, that's worth a lot in and of itself. So what has all this done? It's saying, if you really mean it, if you're willing to commit to it today, we'll reduce the cost of this gift. We'll give you an income tax deduction, puts money in your pocket today, which reduces the cost or increases the yield, depending on how you look at it, and we'll let you do it with things which you otherwise would have paid tax on. A oh, very large incentive. So if a client says I'm going to put a million dollars to Princeton when I die, we talk to them, well, if you really mean it, you know, we can make it much cheaper to do if you step up and do it now. Okay. And often what we'll do is Says, well, that's, that's a good idea. I'm not sure I'm willing to do the whole, you know, like million now. Well, with some of these charitable remainder trusts, particularly the ones that pay a percentage return every year, you can add to it whenever you want. So, what we'll often do is we'll create a charitable remainder trust for them now. It says, you know, when I and my spouse die, and money goes to Princeton, and they may put some money in it to now, maybe hundred thousand dollars of stock they were just going to sell. Right? and uh, the will will say, I leave a million dollars to Princeton minus whatever's in my remainder trust when I die. So it gets to where they want to be and they have an efficient tax structure. Now what do we do? Now we tell the broker, you know, before you go to sell something, call, because this client shouldn't really be paying any capital, gains taxes. And what he should be doing is, before the broker sells, he should move the stock to the remainder trust and sell it there. No no tax on the sale, he's got the government's 15%, and he's funding something he's effectively going to do anyway. So we see a lot of that. Again, it's just a a much more efficient way of doing it than to just put it in the will. The the second... uh, Trust that we're seeing a lot of in the last generations of articles had you know descriptions of some the charitable data trust LEA did. And that's really the reverse of the remainder trust. What it does is it pays to charity a payment for a number of years, and at the end of that term the money comes back to the family. Well, you know, we use those mainly as estate planning vehicles because you can set them up so that the payments to charity are equal to what you put in, it's really when you think about it it's a graph for charity right? so when you do this for example if a client says put a million dollars at my death to Princeton right? again I know what that's going to cost that family it's going to cost the kids five hundred thousand right? dollars but suppose I put that million dollars in a charitable lead trust, and I say, pay Princeton, uh, you know, I guess 15 year trust is about a 10% return. For, right? Pay Princeton $100,000 a year for 15 years. Right? That present value is to a million dollars. I get a charitable deduction for a million dollars in the estate. I pay no estate tax, just like leaving a million dollar bequest to, to Princeton. But what happens in that trust? The IRS is assuming that that million dollars will have a return of 5.6%. If they're right, kids won't get anything. But if that million dollars is invested and grows at 9% over the 15 years, there'll be a lot of money sitting in that trust at the end of the 15 years. It comes back to the family on which nobody's ever paid any cash. So what happened? Princeton still got the million dollars, right? but we got a deduction from more than we really gave away, and we didn't pay tax on what we really gave to the kids. So it's the only gift with an upside for the family, and no downside for them. Worse, that happens is the asset didn't perform at all those to Princeton, which is what we were going to do anyway. Now, it's very interesting. When we go through that with clients, we say, well, you know, I'm over 15 years, we've got to do better than 5.6%. You know, What do the numbers look like if you know, we earn 8% on, on the investments and we run those numbers? A lot of money for the kids. Right? So they'll say, well, let's do a million and a half. Why? Because we reduced the cost of that charitable gift for that family in a very significant way. So our objective is if we can do the philanthropic objectives more efficiently, like using these charitable trusts, Clients can give more, uh, and and so we're always looking for ways to accomplish those priorities uh, at least cost to the family, uh, and uh, and and the charitable side when we reduce the cost, people give more. Thank you, Thank
0: you very much. So the logical question that people have is, if you do one of these strategies, uh, what happens to the money from an investment point of view? And so in your package is a a treasurer's report, and our treasurer is uh, here, Chris McFadden, if I could ask him to come forward, and I will uh, introduce Chris for the purposes of the recording again. so Chris McCrudden is parent uh, 93, uh, Vice President for Finance and Treasurer at Princeton. Uh, came to Princeton in 1973. Uh, Chris has taken on increasing responsibility for managing the university's financial resources. Was promoted to BP for Finance and Treasurer in June 2005. A graduate of Trinity College and uh, received a master's in public administration from Syracuse, where he was a Mellon fellow. Chris, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ron.
3: Good morning. Uh, You and I have more in common than you would think. Number one, at Trinity College, they teach you to pay Yale almost as much as they do at Princeton. (laughs) Um, And I spend a lot of my time thinking about Princeton's financial future. And if you're here, you have spent some time thinking about it, too. And for that, I thank you. Um, Now, if I was an event planner rather than a financial planner... I'm a little conservative, so I would actually schedule the bands to be early in the day when the chance of thunderstorms was low <laughs> in Germany, and schedule the uh, discussions about plan giving late in the day. It has a soporific effect, um, but I'm not in charge of that. Um, uh, I, I am in charge of counting the money. I'm, fortunately for you, I'm not in charge of investing the money. Uh, the investments are all done um, through our... Uh, internal investment company, Princeton University Investment Company, and, and they have done a great job actually of really restructuring and focusing this program and so over the last uh, several years we, we've had just really terrific returns and we, we feel a lot better about the program and the product we're offering to the, um, to the participants. So if you'll flip through your thing you'll see in the sort of first page of profile of the program there's there's not quite a quarter of a billion dollars that's in this program. Um, it's uh, Most of the people um, are, the largest block is in Charitable Remainder Trust, but we do run pools um, that have a substantial number of individuals uh, in them. Uh, most of the dollars are invested in the Charitable Remainder Trust. Um, but um, still substantial amounts uh, in the income fund, the balance fund uh, in particular. And we also have a gift annuity program, which is the newest of our programs and is um, actually uh, growing quite uh, handsomely. Um, if, you, if you've been here last year, the numbers would have been about uh, $7 million smaller. So the program continues to grow uh, in terms of additions to it, as well as returns on the investments. Uh, this is a team effort. Uh, as I said, um, the Princeton University Investment Company is the uh, group that helps us decide both on asset allocation, which is terrifically important, and also who the manager should be. And they were the ones that helped us restructure this program uh, a couple of years ago. The, the largest of the, um, the equity in, in investment managers is uh, GMO, Grantham von uh, Mayo von Utrellew. It's a Boston firm. Uh, they are actually the firm that has the largest amount of money with any single manager for the universities in So that tells you something about the amount of respect we have for them. They are experts in rebalancing among equity markets. So they are able to um, move from different uh, strategies within the US uh, domestic equity market small cap value, large cap whatever, but also more importantly between uh, among uh, US market international developed, international emerging, and, and they do that uh, very, very well. Um, uh, Vanguard Fund, well respected um, John Vogel's not here, I think he's a Plain Giving participant too uh, he uh, he created a great structure very low fees and uh, they have a particularly good uh, real estate uh, or REIT fund um, which we've taken advantage of investing in uh, and we use uh, Aberdeen asset management to uh, do our fixed income which particularly for the balance fund and for the income fund particularly important that's where a lot of their assets are um, my office does the back office accounting uh, we interface with Mellon And we are watched over as representatives of the donors by uh, Ryan and his group. We have uh, uh, regularly scheduled uh, meetings, uh, not just internally, regularly scheduled meetings with Mellon. Um, Mellon is purportedly the best administrator of these. Mellon occasionally falls down. They fell down this year. We had discussions with them. I hope it will not happen next year. Uh, uh, Mellon uh, is... uh, Uh, is being uh, merged into uh, Bank of New York. If it goes through, we have had discussions with both Mellon and Bank of New York, and we expect to see uh, no uh, diminution of services there. Uh, So um, we're we're pretty happy. That was a merger where Bank of New York was trying to uh, fill out niches where they thought they weren't as strong as opposed to simply trying to gain market share and therefore reorganize and restructure units and consolidate and have headcount. So we are continue to be comfortable. You should be aware that Mellon is actually the custodian for the main endowment. So we have a lot of uh, confidence in them as an organization, although the group we deal with is an actually a discrete group dedicated to this kind of uh, servicing. Um, on... Uh, On page four, you will see the rates of return for a uh, typical charitable trust investment. Um, My natural inclination would be to just focus on one year because (laughs) it was a great year, 18.4. But actually, uh, I learned from Andy Golden, the head of Printco, that one year is way too short to look at. You should focus on three years. And in fact, all of our discussions at the PRINCO board really focus on three years, so I will focus on three years. Um, That's a great three years. I mean, that's a great five years. Imagine if I could guarantee you right now, hey, you want to earn 11.5% for the next ten years? You would sign right up. I can't guarantee that. But what I can say is, um, I think we have a portfolio that's best positioned to try and deliver consistently uh, premium returns uh, over the long term. one of the things that doesn't appear on uh, on, on this chart, um, because it uh, we have new benchmarks down here, and it looks like oh you're just you're you're close to the benchmark or maybe a little above, a little below. Um, when Princo makes a decision about how they think the asset should be allocated, they change the benchmarks, so they raise <laughs> the bar. So if I was sitting here saying. 18.4. What does? How does that compare with the 65 U.S. equities, 35% you know Lehman Bonding Index that you would have seen before? Um, that number would be like 11%. So our new portfolio is 18.4 compared to 11%. I mean, uh, they've done a great job and it was a great year. But the three-year is just as impressive, 14.3 compared to 8.0 for the old kind of um, traditional portfolio. So they have done a great job, and we have enjoyed some excellent returns, and we hope to enjoy them in the future. If you flip to page five, you'll see for a typical charitable trust, our exposure is um, heavily uh, equity-weighted, just like the uni- the university's equity-weighting is 85%, um, and and inching up towards about 90%, so it's the same equity orientation. Um, Here you'll see that um, Developed has the biggest single slice, um, bigger than U.S. core equity, um, and uh, Emerging International is a little bit behind it. Uh, As I mentioned, we have Vanguard doing our real estate, um, and we have Aberdeen doing our fixed. So um, the uh, The charitable remainder looks a lot like the the print code portfolio, although it has to be invested somewhat differently, mainly for tax reasons. That is, not for our tax reasons, but for your tax reasons. We invest in some things that are tax-advantaged because of the payouts that's important um, to you. On the university side, we don't need to worry about it. And to some extent, the university's portfolio is not as tax-friendly for right now uh, we are we are not paying taxes on the endowment, although there's some nasty rumblings in Washington. Um, please vote your conscience, Princeton. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and and so it's differently structured. But here we tried to put together a very uh, tax-efficient uh, investment uh, uh, formula. Um, on, on page five, um, we we turn to the the pooled funds. Um, these are important um, because for many people they're they're the most uh, economic and attractive vehicle. Um, individual can go into them more easily than setting up whole charitable remainder trust. Um, and we can uh, sort of meet three different sets of needs. Um, the, uh, the Tiger Fund is for those who have a fairly long time horizon, a fairly low payout need. And over time, it will do the best. It's the most heavily invested uh, in equities. Um, but we also have a balanced fund, which is more half equities, half fixed income. And, and for those for whom current income is important, um, we can and provide the income fund, which is, uh, which is totally in, in bonds. Um, so, relatively speaking, um, the longer-term results from an equity fund will outperform the others. And you can see the Tiger Fund, over a long period of time, um, does better... Um, but the uh, each of the other funds deliver what the donors needed at that particular time when they when they gave a the gift. Um, I, I mentioned uh, the Vanguard um, as the manager of real estate in part because we did have some problems in, in 2004 and 2005 which was the early years of the Restructured program Uh, when we used a different manager, a very good manager for the Real Estate Investment uh, 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 Trust, um, but their payments were very lumpy, and they weren't even predictably lumpy at all times. (laughs) Uh, And and that was uh, a difficulty for some of our donors, so we switched to um, Vanguard, who also has an excellent product, but it uh, pays out at a much more uh, equal rate, and so we've taken some of those fluctuations out of the, the uh, uh, dollars uh, as they get paid out, which you know to some extent hopefully has eliminated people's concerns about well, wh- which is it. Is it last quarter's distribution or this quarter's distribution I p- should be planning on? And, and I think we have a more stable uh, program there. Uh, but in each case, I think the funds have, have done well with um, compound rates of return being the highest in the Tiger at a little over ten uh, percent uh, and um, even the income fund in a low uh, income environment, you know rates were, during this period, rates were at a historic low, um, uh, producing positive returns for you. If you go to page seven, uh, you will see the um, asset allocation of the three funds, income fund being entirely uh, uh, in, in bonds uh, with Aberdeen the balanced fund being, sort of being almost exactly half in uh, fixed income and the rest in uh, equities or real estate. And finally, the Tiger Fund, uh, which has the lowest yield of them, um, but the highest uh, long-term rate of return, where um, domestic equities, international, and um, real estate uh, dominate the portfolio. Seventy-five uh, percent of the portfolio is uh, equity-oriented. Uh, in some way or another although the real estate helps keep uh, a good uh, income flow to our uh, participants that has got a little higher yield than uh, than some of the other ones Um, page 8 shows that for different people the different funds work better so for those needing a higher uh, initial yield or uh, absolute stability of income, the income fund um, does a good job. Um, the balanced fund does almost as good a job at producing uh, interest dividend income, um, but has a little bit of an equity kicker and, and, and over time will give you a little bit of extra growth. The Tiger Fund is sort of deferred gratification. Um, you, you get a lower payout in the beginning, but and, and particularly as you, as when we did some changes in the program, um, we uh, we see some some real um, appreciation, and and now of course, uh, it uh, has the uh, the highest amount of um, performance and cumulative value. In addition to the investment vehicles that will vary based on the market. Uh, we do have one that is rock-solid, as you would say. I'm not saying we're credential. We're still privately held. Um, uh, we do have a gift annuity program. It's our newest program, and and for some individuals, it's the simplest, easiest, and uh, most straightforward to meet their needs. Um, the uh, Here we have a guaranteed payout. Um, on page 9, uh, you can see that um, given our investments, conservatively invested, but designed to make sure that we have more than adequate amounts for the future. Um, We've had uh, total gifts of a little over ten million dollars. We paid out substantial amounts in accordance with it and we still uh, actually um, have the same amount uh, of of value even though we've met a lot of our projected obligations. So we have a lot of cushion here. People aren't talking about the markets being overvalued right now, but you know, whenever they hit new highs, you worry about whether they're a little overvalued. And we have a substantial cushion here. I, th- I think this program is on excellent uh, financial footing, and and we're glad that this fits into some people's needs. So why don't I stop there uh, and see if there are any questions? I guess the last thing I can say is um, the. Um, the first five months of this year, at least, have been very kind to all the programs, and we are um, we are looking at uh, you know very nice rates of return were they to annualize. I wish I could promise that they would annualize, but uh, but it's been a good five months, so we uh, we've been enjoying the prosperity that's been reflected in the general market. So why don't I stop there and see if you don't have um,
0: questions? In fact, in the interest of time, since we promised you we'd close by 10.30, if you have questions for any of the presenters, uh, now would be a good
1: time to do that. Yes. There was was a general reference that Bob made early on to some of the psychosocial implications of inherited money. What about, as opposed to a GST, the suitability with other considerations, obviously, dynasty trusts? The GST trust is is a form of dynasty trust, and they they're similar names. Uh, the dynasty Trust are, came up more because in certain states you can extend the trust forever. Uh, in other states, there's a limit called the rule against perpetuities yeah. that says you can only have the trust go on for a certain length of time. And uh, I it, probably because we have a limitation in California. When I ask clients about whether they care about the great-great-grandchildren and so forth, there tends to be some disinclination to be too worried about that. Other people look at it and say, if I can take it off the table uh, and have this pot running for the family for the foreseeable future, why not? Well, I mean, there's there's another
2: aspect to it. I mean, there's obviously the tax piece of it, Mm -hmm. but uh, we actually virtually never do any gifts, bequests, or trusts that end. We don't do any trusts that pay out at specified ages anymore. Because what we've discovered is that when, when clients really think about their kids, uh, sure, there's some age where let them have the money. I mean, either they figured it out at age 30 or they're never going to figure it out, you know, and let them have the money. But what they are worried about consistently are creditors and spouses. Right? And, and once a trust ends, once you distribute the money, Okay, there's no protection. Right? The money comes out at age 35 and they run a lawyer down with their car the next day and get sued for a gazillion bucks, It goes the inheritance. Okay? In, in most states, although the trust distribution is not marital property, in most states the future income and appreciation is marital or community property. And 10 years later there's a divorce, a big chunk of the inheritance walks out the door. Uh, in contrast, if the assets stay in trust, not subject to creditor claims, not marital property or community property for divorce purposes. So there's this huge benefit to the beneficiary of the continuing trust structure. Now, most of our clients, on the other hand, don't want their kids trusted up for life. They don't want them to have to, you know, grovel to Uncle Joe when they want to buy a Ferrari. You know, I mean, at some point, it's supposed to be their money. So what we'll typically do is at the age at which the client would have otherwise given them the money, whether it's thirty or thirty-five, we let them be sole trustee of their own trust. Okay? Now that gives the kid the best of both worlds. Okay? It gives them a structure that allows them to protect themselves from third parties but control over the money. Right? Uh, with that structure, why in the world would you ever distribute the money? I mean, you know, all of you are probably struggling with gee, if I could protect my assets from creditors and still control it, I'd do it in a flash. We won't let you do it for yourself. We won't let you put your assets in a trust for your own benefit and control it as trustee. Those are still subject to your creditors. Somebody's got to do it for you. So we're not willing to give that up in an estate plan. In fact, we've got a lot of these trusts in administration. And what we find is most of the kids never take anything out of the trust. Okay? Because the only thing you need to take money out of a trust for are consumables, food, clothes, vacations. We hope, by the time they're in their 30s, they have like jobs and they, you know, have some income to pay for their consumables. You know, Everything else you can think of is really an investment, not an expense. And investments are done in the trust. So you want to buy a sure house? The trust buys and owns the house. You want to start a business? The trust funds and owns the business. Why would you pull the money out? of a pool that you control that's protected from third parties unless you are forced to do it and nobody's forcing you to do it so we've gotten away from any trust that mandates now this is not a structure that protects the kids from themselves right? because when you're sole trustee of your own trust there's nothing to prevent you from doing really stupid things right? because there's no check and balance so it's it's a structure where you otherwise would have given the money to them at some point in time we just give them control at that point in time. but i have a lot of clients who they would never give the money to the kids I mean, there's always a co-trustee you know who's going to control it but that's a different scenario Thank you. One, last,
0: one last question
1: yeah uh... i live in seattle my tax planner says live in seattle and don't pay an income tax, but when you're ready to die, go to New Mexico. Now, now can you talk right. if you a little
2: time? That <laughs> let me. Uh,
1: <laughs> can you talk about the implications of these state yeah, the state, the state, state issues?
2: Are really a major problem. I can't tell you how many people I've moved out of New Jersey in the last five years. Okay, you know New Jersey adopted you know a millionaires tax on the income tax, and. The New Jersey residents got no estate tax benefit from the federal changes, okay? Because for the wealthy people in New Jersey, they have a 16% state debt tax, 16%. It's deductible for federal purposes, right? So maybe it's net, you know, eight, but the federal tax is 45, so they're at 53, right? They didn't get any real benefit from the tax breaks compared to Florida, which has no debt tax. So you die in Florida, you pay 45 percent. Right? You got a 10 percent break in Florida. So there, it, I mean, we are a very mobile society now. So people, you know, pick where they're going to live, both for income tax purposes and for death tax purposes. I mean, the difference between zero and eight percent is a big difference. Uh, you know, you move across the river, river to Pennsylvania, and you drop to two percent. You know, from eight. You know, a lot of people say, "Well, I could live in Bucks County instead of, you know, uh, you know, Morristown, and they, you know, move across the river. And you know, when they adopted the income tax, uh, my guess is at this point they probably did not net out with any profit in New Jersey, because it's one thing to add, "Well, tax people for this extra income, the millionaires that they make," right? But you don't need an awful lot of people who drop entirely out of the system to offset that. And, you know, that's what's going on. We're seeing the same thing with trust taxation. Um, You know, California, very high income tax state, right? You have a trustee in California, you pay California taxes. So if I got a client whose kid lives in California, right? You think that kid's going to be trustee of his own trust? Is going kind to of, appoint his best friend, who lives in you know in Pennsylvania, because doesn't pay any taxes. Right? If, he, if he if he has a California trustee, he pays California taxes. So there's a lot of analysis on state income taxes because you know that's where the is coming from from the state from a lot of states like New York and California. But the debt tax is causing a, a lot of people to move around and and. Uh, you know, Florida's a perfect example. I mean, you know, a lot of people, you know, move to Florida, uh, change their domicile. That doesn't mean you have to spend half a year in Florida, you know, most of which is
0: uninhabitable, you know. <laughs> well, thanks so much to uh, Chris and Bob and Frank for being our presenters. I hope you find this helpful. Please uh, fill out your evaluation and have a great uh, reunion.